This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, John Stryker Meyer. John served for two tours in Vietnam with SOG, Studies and Observations Group, as a Green Beret, Army Special Forces, a group that went behind the lines in Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. Incredible stories. Uh, and now he's written three books, which will hopefully be more in the future. Uh, the first is Across the Fence, followed by On the Ground, and then SOG Chronicles, Volume 1. Uh, just amazing. I'm going to read this to set the tone. From 1964 to 1972, far beyond the battlefields of Vietnam and the glare of media distortions, American Green Berets and their indigenous troops fought a deadly secret war in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam under the aegis of the top secret Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, or simply SOG. The inaugural edition of SOG Chronicles Volume 1 will be the first in a series of books focusing on the many untold stories from that eight-year secret war where Green Berets went deep behind enemy lines without conventional support from artillery, tanks, or ground support troops, where communist forces massed 50,000 to 100,000 troops to combat them while keeping the Ho Chi Minh Trail supply lines open. Incredible time. Go deep into the jungle with five SOG warriors surrounded by 10,000 enemy troops as they stack up the dead to build a human buttress for protection. Witness a Green Beret shot in the back four times and left for dead who survives to fight savagely against incredible odds to complete his mission. Shudder as an enemy soldier touched a Green Beret's boot in the dark, hoping to make a kill. Cringe as a sergeant on SOG's spike team, Louisiana, calls in an airstrike on his team to break an enemy's attack and loses a leg in an out-of-body experience. Stories are incredible. Nothing but the utmost respect for everyone who went downrange, did that job, and to John Stryker Meyer for coming back and uh, preserving these stories for future generation. I had is off to you, sir. Thank you so much for spending this time. And now, without further ado, John Stryker Meyer. When you and I first talked last year, mm-hmm. and I had I had the terminal list, and I got it, and uh, I started reading it. Then we moved, and I packed it. But even in some of those early segments, like when Reese gets blown up on that hill, man, that flashed me right back because we had a mission where we launched into a target in Laos and they had a 500 pound bomb rigged on the LZ for us. And this is 1968. And I read that. It's like, Oh my God. Wow. So I, I remember I got through it to where was it Boozer? Yeah. And, oh God. Yeah, and I was like, okay, my book is still in the garage. Oh, <laughs> we've moved. It's been. We have forty boxes yet out there, Jack. I, oh, I know. <laughs> I know what you mean. Oh, I'm, you know. Yeah. yeah, we're just doing the same thing out here. There's boxes everywhere. It's chaos, but uh, but we're we're getting there because we had the recent move as well. And you're in Tennessee now, right? Is that is that where you moved? Yeah, we're 35 miles west of Nashville, oh, north okay. of the 40. Okay, okay. Well, I get to Nashville every now and again, and I, I owe another visit out there. And Safari Club International is going to be there next year, so I have a a built-in excuse to get out to to see you now. So, uh, so we'll we'll talk and, and figure that out. But going back to the rigged uh, LZ, what how, how did you know? I mean, it didn't explode when you came in there, and there's a 500 pound. Well, no, thank again. It's our indige. I forget if it was my uh, Sal who was my uh, 
my Vietnamese team leader on our team yeah. or fuck our point man. But, you know, with their H-34s, they would spiral into a target. At some point, somehow they saw the wire across the LZ and they yelled to the door gunner who yelled to the pilot and they aborted the insert. And then the A1s came back and hit the LZ and they had a 500 pound bomb go off at, uh, that was tied to the tripwire. And that's just a normal day for you guys back then. Just another day in SOG. <laughs> I love it. I mean, amazing. Because I grew up, you know, with these, uh, you know, Vietnam stories, of course, first movies and, and books, fiction, and then the very few that were out there that were nonfiction at the time. Uh, and oh, most yeah. of those were someone talking to somebody like you who maybe said a sentence or two here or there, and then they'd extrapolate and study some history and some maps and talk to a few other people, but it wasn't the actual person on the ground until right. there were a few in the mid eighties that came out and a few more started trickling in, in the nineties. Um, but did you read any soldier of fortune? I read almost all the soldier of fortunes and I was going to bring that well, up you know, because you were, okay. yeah, yeah. That was, I can say it. You're talking to Isaac Stotts. Oh, nice. Awesome. Okay. I didn't yeah. realize that you had a, you were using a pen name back then. That's awesome. I had to. I was working at the San Diego Union. Uh-huh. If they knew I was writing for Soldier of Fortune magazine, oh, they would have wrapped me up and kicked me the hell out <laughs> in the heart. You know, Soldier of Fortune, you know, people, you know, it, it was kind of, it created a, its own, uh, essentially, genre of magazine. Uh, there were spinoffs, oh, of yeah. course, like Gung Ho and a few others. Um, but it was a you know predecessor to all these different magazines we have today. But there was some fantastic reporting in Soldier of Fortune magazine. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it's just kind of you know thrown to the side by uh the intelligentsia. Um, but there is some was some really good on-the-ground reporting. Central South America, uh Vietnam, of course, Cambodia Laos, Afghanistan in particular, Ooh. yes. Um, so Africa. Uh, so there were so many uh, stories that guys that were writing for that magazine captured. I mean, I, if, if they didn't capture them there, they weren't going to get captured anywhere for the <laughs> longest time. But uh, how did that come about? Oh, yeah. Before we go back, I have so many questions for you. And uh, and I hope we can do this in person because there's going to be way more quest- oh, no, questions you, than we have time hey, for. I'll set the time aside. So this is like... We've been we've had a really rough couple of weeks here, so I'm glad to take a break. Good, good, good. You guys had hit with the snow. You guys got a had a, had a little. It was a oh, yeah. little <laughs> you don't really expect that when you move to the Nashville area, I guess. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, so after 35 years in San Diego County, I knew we'd have some weather, but just the reality of having you know four or five inches of rain fall in a half an hour, yeah, or snow, yeah, and ice a little. Not as bad as New Jersey, but we had two tornadoes. We were like, we had tornado alerts back to back within one week and one touched down a few miles away and wiped out 315 houses. Oh, jeez! On the same day, they went up to Kentucky. Oh, oh it was horrible. Oh, jeez! Oh, yeah. Welcome to Tennessee. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you can't get away from it. You can't get out of the war zones. My gosh, it just follows you around. But, uh, you know, it's possible that we've met before. It's possible. Really? Where? Special Operations Association. I, yeah, 2003, 2005. I think I, right, was, five I was, was the year John Walton came to the reunion. Okay. So I was there at two of them and I was trying to piece back no. in my mind, which ones I went to. Um, because before I entered the SEAL teams, I kind of got taken under the wing of two, uh, project Delta guys, uh, from yeah. Vietnam. Um, and you know, I hadn't really spent any time talking to people who had actually 
done the special operations stuff, except for reading probably your articles in Soldier of Fortune uh, and all these other magazines and books here and there. Anything I could possibly read on warfare, uh, specifically yeah, yeah. on special operations, I just devoured. Uh, my mom was a librarian, so I grew up with this love of reading and books. So, um, so these guys that I met before I went into, into the SEAL teams, uh, I mean, they really took me under their wing. They wanted to pass on some of those lessons uh, that they had learned in the jungles of Vietnam at Project Delta. Yeah. So it's the first time I heard about one zero and one one because I hadn't really read that stuff before. So I'm hearing these stories and piecing it together. Uh, some of the different weapons that they used back then. Um, they got me on the range where you all sorts of different weapons. I'm learning, uh, you know, M16, AR15, assembly, disassembly type stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm learning revolvers. I'm learning pistols. I'm learning uh, uh, striker fire. I'm learning 1911. I mean, they're just putting me through the paces for a good year and a half, um, probably almost two years really? before I went into the military. We rented cars. They taught me how to drive, doing this invasive drives. First time I was doing bootleg turns was with them. Um, and it was, it was incredible. Who are these guys? And uh, so James Jarrett is, uh, is the, the kind of the, let, led the charge. And then the other one, okay. Gary S. I'll just say last name S because I think he likes to keep it on the, you know, I'm just not sure. So, um, but yeah, Indeed. it was, uh, it He's was got to be meeting clandestine. Yeah, man, that's it. That's it. Secret <laughs> stuff, secret stuff. Um, but they passed on so much to me and I, they, and more than any of those skills, they taught me how yeah. to think logically, which is something it's interesting because up to that point, you know, you're learning, you're memorizing things for school here and there, whether it's history or whatever. Um, but I hadn't really been taught how to think logically about things yet. So they opened the aperture for me in, uh, and I, I'm, grateful to them for everything they taught me, but wow. that's probably the most valuable lesson they taught me is how to, how to think. Um, uh, well, that's one of the yeah. things that's interesting too. Like Jocko talked about how, when he came back from a second deployment, he really emphasized the need for this history and you know what we lessons learned and how to move forward and always looking for new ways to improve things, which is something you've talked about in some of your other podcasts. And, uh, even Andy, and of course, Mike Glover, the real animal. Oh yeah. It's got you know? great guys. All those great guys. Yeah. And, you know, they're doing some amazing things, but the, you know, capturing some of this history by talking to, you know, guys like you, um, who, I mean, really, I mean, set the stage, uh, develop the lessons learned, the, uh, the TTPs, the tactics, techniques, procedures that, uh, that we would adapt later to the mountains of Afghanistan or the, the cities of, of, uh, of Iraq. But, uh, I mean, yeah, we owe you a debt of gratitude, your generation, a debt of gratitude that we'll never be able to repay. Um, and doing these well, podcasts yeah, you know is, is one of the ways to See, capture some I, of this. I think you guys, we raised the bar and you lifted up another level or two. Each new generation brings... And what I've seen and heard, what you guys have done, hearing about the multiple, I only had two deployments. And you guys, some of them, I don't know if you were married or not, and you got kids when you're still deploying. Oh, my God. I don't know how you do it. I did it. Yeah. Luckily, they were young at the time. My first few were without kids. And then uh, my last three, I think we had uh, had kids. But um, uh, but But your deployments were a little different. I mean... I mean, right. I mean, in these books, you capture some of these stories and the Jocko podcast, others, uh, what you're oh, doing yeah. with SOG Chronicles, your, uh, the website. I mean, you're doing some amazing things, um, but uh, your deployments were insane. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what a watershed moment in special operations history uh, for you to be involved at the tip of the spear at the highest levels of that, developing, adapting on the, on the go. And uh, I mean, it's incredible. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to read the back of On the Ground real quick, just for people that might be like, 
what is, I mean, they're listening to this podcast, they probably know, but, uh, but there's some reach yeah, yeah. here that goes beyond the, the military. So if people are like, what is, what are they talking? What is SOG? What, <laughs> what is this thing? Um, I'll read the back on the ground. Um, and you say during the Vietnam war, a secret war was fought across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam, unknown to the media or the public. Under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam's Top Secret Studies and Observations Group, SOG's chain of command for missions and after-action reports extended to the White House and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Small Green Beret-led teams ran missions into Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam without assistance from con- conventional artillery, tank, or infantry units. Once on the ground, their sole support was provided by Air Force tactical air and helicopter units, U.S. Army and Marine helicopter aviation personnel and air crews, and from the South Vietnam Air Force's 219th Special Operations Squadron, codenamed King Bees. In Laos, the communists dedicated 50,000 troops to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, including highly trained sappers from the 305th Sapper Battalion. Its sole mission, attack SOG teams. I mean, incredible. Incredible what we would oh, yeah. What you guys did, but before you got to that, let's get let's bring let's bring people up to speed. How does a how does a, a kid even find out about uh, SOG, or was that uh, that was something that you found out once you were already in the army and once you were enlisted? What was your path that led you up to uh, to enlisting? Um, well, we were going through. Well, I flunked out of college. <laughs> Two years to flunk out. <laughs> let this That's be a lesson to people. Nineteen sixty six. So I'm in Yosemite National Park. I love that part, by the as way. a yeah. garbage man slash firefighter. And um, the, I read the book, The Green Berets. My dad has sent me a letter. I read the book. And I said, that's it. If I go, I want to go with these guys. Because I'm a city slicker from Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, if I go, I need more than just eight weeks of basic and eight weeks of AIT before I go to a combat zone. So um, I went down the list when I got home. Uh, I fooled around for a few months, enlisted at the end of 66, December, enlisted in the army, went through basic. And they told me for special forces, you couldn't enlist for it. At that time, you had to list for airborne on a sign. And then during advanced infantry training, there would be recruiters. And if you wanted to volunteer, you did. So that's what I did. In the middle of AIT, we had a series of tests. They ran us through the test. And um, you know, at the end... <laughs> The sergeant has the, those of us that pass the test. I'm the last guy. He brings in each guy individually to his little room and tells him the news. I'm the last one. He goes, Meyer, you're lucky. We lowered the standards. <laughs> and so that was the beginning. And from there, with the jump school, uh, special forces training in Camo. And then we had a uh, three months TDY before NOM with a uh, uh, radio teletype. And that was, they wanted green, we had Camo with the, they wanted SF guys with the top secret clearance on radio teletype, which I never used. And we never used Morse code ever again. Okay. Anytime. And then we had gone through training group near the end of our Camo training. We had SF guys that had been in three or four tours already. And all of them said, when you go to Vietnam, you're green, go to an A team, but there's going to be a little recruiters going to come out at the end of your in-country training. They're going to ask for volunteers. Don't do it. Go to an ACAN. So May 1968, we completed our in-country training. Me and Johnny McIntyre, we just saw the movie, The Green Berets, with John Rain. And sure enough, now comes a little ditty bopper. We're looking for volunteers. Johnny McIntyre goes, for what? He goes, sorry, either you're in or you're out. 
So we volunteered. But what would John Wayne do? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, in 1966, uh, so what are you hearing before you enlist there? When you're in Yosemite, what kind of news are you getting about Vietnam at that time? Has the, the anti-war stuff started up yet? Or what are you hearing on the ground? You, I mean, you only have newspapers, magazines that come out once a month or once yeah, a week. You had the and, the, and the networks. news. Yeah. So what are you and, hearing? And, uh, you know, during high school, uh, we had mandatory reading was the New York Times back when it was a real newspaper. And uh, <clears throat> we, we learned about Southeast Asia and the, and the one thing that caught my eye in 1964 was when Roger Donlan received the Medal of Honor. The first Medal of Honor in Vietnam was a Green Beret at an aid camp. And his that battle was July of 64. He got the award near the end of the year. And I was a freshman in college going, holy shit. This is like, this is like the guys I read about in the Green Berets. Look at him. He was a stud. He still is. He's, he's going to be 89 on the 30th. So uh, that caught my mind. It stuck back there. It took me tears to flunk out. And uh, so there was some anti-war, but, you know, it was us versus communism. That's what it came down to. And I knew it was going to be drafted. So I want to go. If I go, if I can go with these guys. And uh, like the sergeant said, they lowered the standards. So I got in. And we had that moment. It came out in the recruiting. And... Uh, so we volunteered two days later. We were up at our top secret briefing. We're in the room and uh, all the windows are blacked out. And we pull out our notebooks and pens like good students that we've been for the last 15 months, right? And uh, the sergeant says, put that shit away. This is the top secret briefing. One piece of paper, you know, the uh, NDA. And he explained what that was. He says, you can sign it or leave. We all signed it, went on the briefing, took the curtain down. And there was on one side was North, I mean, South Vietnam, I Corps, two Corps, three Corps. Then across the fence, we had Laos and Cambodia, all with target indicator boxes on them. It's like, whoa. That's and awesome. you know, at the end of that briefing, we heard that uh, Sergeant First Class Phil Villarosa was killed in action out of a mission on SOG. And it turns out, you know, Phil was our instructor. He worked with us, me, McIntyre, Tony Harrell. We all went through this training. He brought us in at nights. He brought us in extra hours on the weekends to spend time from his family. So we would get up to speed on Morse code. And here was our idol from training group who two or three months, you know, five months earlier had helped us get through to earn the Green Beret. And he was KIA. Not only was he KIA, but they torched him with a flamethrower. And they kept one American alive to view it and come back and tell the troops about how they killed him. Wow. I mean, that's Welcome a, to the Secret War. Yeah. You know, that's something that's been done throughout history is letting that one person live to tell the story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, by the time we're done, McIntyre and I fly up to FOB1. We got off the King Bee, which is the code name for our South Vietnamese pilots. We get off, a recon team gets on. <clears throat> They go missing in action. The whole team was wiped out. Just the two Americans are still amongst the 50 Green Berets missing in action today from the Secret War. In addition to the 83 aviators, at least 83 who died supporting us on the ground. And it had an instant opening in recon on uh, my the recon team, Spike Team Idaho. In 68, there were spike teams. And after that, we called them recon teams. 
man, I mean, I have some questions about the MIA stuff for you, sure. but, uh, but before we get there, basic training, what rifle do they hand you in basic training before you get to AIT, before you go to the, did they call it the Q course back then still, or was it uh, something else? No, well, they may have called it the Q course, but I just forget. Okay. It's, it's just training, SF training. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we, we had phase one, which was your basic training, survival, hand-to-hand, yeah. land navigation, and, uh, and then we had the MOS training, and then you had your FTX training, which is the field training exercise. And of course, <laughs> the brilliance of the Army, in December, we jump in for our FTX in the mountains of North Carolina, and we get snowed on nice. for our training to go to Southeast Asia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not much has changed, I don't think, as far as that stuff goes. When you're talking about bureaucracy, that's just how things how things go. Uh, they probably give you the snowshoe know, training, teach you how to speak. Weapons guys. So yeah. basic training at Fort Dix was the M14. I got to tell you, Jack, I earned my expert badge. It was five degrees below zero. Wow. And I was proud. That was one of my most proud uh, badges was my expert badge for the M14. I love it. I love it. Ironside oh, yeah. M14. And then uh, then when AIT still M14s in, in, in uh, AIT? We started with M14s and they, then they gave us the, uh, the introduction to the first M16s. Okay. The ones with the triple nose on them, you know? Oh, wow. For the fast suppressor, the old ones. Okay. Wow. And, uh, yeah. In those first gave, ones, what were, was what was your initial impression on. of the, of the M16 that you got, or what was the initial impression of the, uh, the cadre that was teaching you? Do you remember? Well, the, the cadre was, you know, they were drill sergeants and majority were, uh, combat trained. They'd been in the first, this is 1967. So we had the I drank Valley two years earlier. <clears throat> The 173rd had been bloodied earlier in 67. Um, and by this time, the news stories are coming out, but just reflecting how serious the communists were yeah. in South Vietnam. And uh, we had great trainers. They were really good. Uh, and, they, and the majority were straight legs. They had a couple of airborne troops in there. Yeah. But uh, when it came to the weapons, yeah, we started with the M14 again. Then we had the, uh, uh, the M16. M79, the uh, the 45 caliber pistol, the, the old Colt 1911, and uh, we may have had one other, but those are the ones that I remember the most. Yeah, well, I don't think the M79s changed one bit from uh, when you <laughs> when you trained on it to when I trained on it to when you took it to war to when I took it to war. So, well, remember, uh, did you modify yours when you took yours to war? Some of my friends did. Uh, we had the the we had to keep the stock on ours, but uh, yeah. Uh, I saw you modified yours. There's a picture in here uh, that oh, some yeah. of the guys, you know, made the pirate guns. We call it the pirate gun. And so you cut that off, what you call it? yeah, you cut off that stock yeah, yeah. and then you cut, you cut like the it. barrel and it's just like a handgun uh, essentially uh, that you can, and we put oh, a yeah. magnet on it. The guys that carried it at that stage, put a magnet here. And so it would just kind of, you know, attach to the magnet well, and it'd still be slung. So you're not going to just lose it. You know, it's going to stay attached to you, right. but it keeps it from banging or banging around, especially if you're, you know, doing oh, yeah. other stuff up here, but, uh, <laughs> but it hasn't changed much. I mean, that, and that's cool. I saw that in the book. I saw there's that picture there of it cut down and I was like, ah, you know, this looks familiar. Here we go. <laughs> Everything looks familiar. I mean, the car, you know, what you call the car 15, uh, it doesn't look too much different <laughs> from the M4. Uh, you know, no. it, I mean, it's essentially, we're going to the war with the, a lot of the same stuff. Technology, of course, has evolved a little bit with night vision and thermals and some of the, obviously well, the yeah, ISR assets. And, and everything. Uh, what's that? 
You had all the rails and everything on the M4. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. The only so, thing you waited, you just like when we were on a jock and we joked, the only thing you missed was a cigarette lighter. I know, I think some of them might have had that. Uh, yeah, it's an <laughs> option. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's amazing how similar the gear was. I mean, obviously, plate carriers and helmets and all that stuff uh, evolved, but um, you know, the actual mechanism of that rifle and the, uh, and the M79 and the size of the radios. I mean, you were a comm guy. I was a comm guy too. So I started enlisted, uh, went to comm school. I had to learn right. Morse code as well. So I came in in no. 97, went right to comm school. Uh, I was learning Morse, Morse code still back then. I don't think I could, I can, maybe if I really dig deep, I can remember it a little, you know, go back in the memory banks there, but, uh, yeah, the yeah. size of the radio, and we had the, I, I think we had the PRC 20, the PRC 25s. Uh, or the 77. You know, that, and yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so we had those and then we had some other ones, but the size of the radios has not changed very much. I mean, you can do more no. with the embitter and some other radios out there. Um, but when you really need to blast and have you, we have the two big batteries, which are probably very similar, the 5590s, uh, the two batteries that uh, power the radios. It seems like the radios are built around the size of the battery, probably because they're made in someone's congressional district and they keep, they need to keep those, those, uh, 5590, those big green batteries going. So they build the radio around the size of yeah. the, uh, of the battery. But, uh, but seeing that you guys carried that and you did that combo school. So that, that was your main, that was your focus at, as part oh, yeah. of SF training was going doing the comm stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's what it was. And, uh, and then we were in country, we, we, uh, uh, trained with live assets, making gun runs. Nice. And then once I got on the recon team, Spider Parks was our team leader and he was good. He had run several missions. So he knew what the game was. And plus we were all traumatized with losing Sergeant Lane and the team and uh, Sergeant Owen. And uh, so we trained and we did extra training with, with ourselves. With a, We had a couple of practice missions. We made gun runs, used napalm. And just to get used to the ordinance that we had at hand. Yeah. Do you remember? So, so you, I mean, you did airborne school just like I did at Fort Benning. Uh, yeah. I don't think it oh, changed yeah. much. Once again, just like those other things we talked about, I don't think it changed much between when you went through and I went through. I think very similar type of training. I mean, all the, every, all the, uh, what are the, the swing landing trainer, all that stuff looked like the old black and white films that I'd seen essentially from World War II all the way to the time that I went through. But, um, but do you remember your first day in Vietnam? What was that? What was that like flying? How did you fly in? Oh, uh, we flew in the commercial airline. Okay. And then when we parked, I remember when we, when we got off, I felt like I needed a knife to cut through the humidity. It was so thick. You, and of course in the air, it was hot, like close. To, I, I want to say close to hundred degrees with hot, a lot of humidity. We flew into uh, Cameron Bay. And the humidity, the stench, and then we looked down. You could see people working in the fields. They had local, local indigenous people working. I remember anybody could be a Viet Cong. So instantly, it's like I'm on full alert without a weapon. You know, we all fly there with no weapons or anything. It's like okay, anybody could be a weapon. It's like head jerking. Yeah. Jeez, you <laughs> land, you see that? Yeah. yeah. On our first night at the Trang, which was the headquarters of Fifth Group, we were mortared. And the barracks next to us took two direct hits, killed several people. We had all the shrapnel stuff come over in our barracks. And we ran downstairs to the weapons room. It's locked. And we go out to the wall and just observe. That was just harassing fire. No kidding. So That's when do you all. actually still, get issued a, uh, a rifle? When do you get issued your first uh, rifle or pistol? 
yeah, we finally got that in, in training group eventually. But then again, at night you had to, when we were in training, that in-country training, you always turned your weapons in at night. Oh, geez. <laughs> and like, lock them up. Okay. Gosh. Yeah. So that was right. And how long was in-country training? Three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Three weeks. Yeah. We yeah, landed in April of 68. We trained up and then we had the briefings and everything. I landed at Fubai around about May 20th. And that was when uh, ST Idaho went missing. And that, what happened to that? And so you're hearing these stories at that time? Oh, no, this is direct. Um, and here's another one. These culture, culture shocks, working with your local people. We trained up on helicopters, all American, UEs. They had some experimental helicopters, Huskies. They had a Jolly Green Giant. And, of course, the dreaded Chinook. And um, so we did all this training. Well, after our top secret briefing, they say, go to Da Nang Air Force. The Vietnamese are going to fly you up to um, FOB-1. Well, we never told anything about any of our air assets or who they were. So we come out to the uh, air pad at Da Nang Airfield, and here's a CH-34, an old Sikorsky with a B-17 nine-cylinder engine in it. And when it starts up, it's coughing and sputtering. You know how those things, uh -huh. it's like, oh, my God, is this thing it? This is going to be our helicopter ride, and it's flown by South Vietnamese, WTF. Uh huh. <laughs> well, it turns out, of course, that they were just incredibly brave, uh, phenomenal, uh, fearless pilots. I'm alive thanks to them. Our team was saved many times by them. But that first day, and we're flying up, Jack, up Highway 1, and we get to the base. They turned it on its side, and we're sitting by the door, facing out the door. And all of a sudden, you go from a scenic looking at highway one over the base <laughs> it's like oh welcome to the war wow so you land and oh, who, yeah. who meets you out there oh we're um they just sent somebody out with a truck took us in and we were they took us into the s3 s2 shop and uh there was spider parks and bob and i had gone through training group together and uh in fact i was his catcher on our softball team for company a <laughs> And uh, we had a great softball team that year. Members. <laughs> and here's my old pitcher. Amazing. And it was great. But he had been on Idaho. And he'd just been promoted to take over another team. And so he did not go out in that mission. And we were so lucky because Hep, the team interpreter, didn't go. And Sal, who was the counterpart, didn't go. They, were, they rotate the indig out on those missions. So Bob took over the team. And we had Hep and Sal. We went out. They hired new people. They vetted them first. And then uh, Bob did the follow-up on it. And we hired, amongst the four, we were four or five we hired, we hired three 15-year-olds. And within a couple months, they were trained up and sharp. No kidding. What was the, oh, yeah. What was the vetting like for those guys? And, and before we go much further, I'm gonna, you, people are hearing you talk about teams going missing and these casualties. And I want to read this real quick here. And it's from, sure. uh, it's from your, your website, which is sogchronicles.com, which is awesome. I love the old photos on there. I mean, it's, it's in the photos <laughs> in these books. It's just incredible. Um, uh, uh, McPhee Sog recon casualties exceeded 100%, the highest sustained American loss rate since the Civil War. In 1968, every Sog recon man was wounded at least once, and about half were killed. But despite such high losses, McPhee Sog boasted the highest kill ratio in the U.S. military history topping out at 158 to one in 1970. I mean, incredible what you guys are doing. 
Um, and so once you land there and you're essentially on the, the front lines about to go behind the lines, um, about to go over the fence, what was your first mission? But how long are you on the ground there before you are out uh, doing the job? Well, because the team had been wiped out like that, we were fortunate that the Bob trained us really well. We had uh, uh, a month and a half. We did some local ambushes at night, mm. traditional stuff. And then um, we had a practice mission on the east side of the Ashaw Valley, which was our most dangerous target up in i in Laos. And uh, we did a, a mission there. And then our first official mission was in August, where we inserted Air Force sensors in the, in, uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the Ashaw Valley. And, uh, you know, in 65 to 66, there had been three Green Beret camps in the Ashaw Valley. All had been overrun and wiped out. And there's amazing books written on those just alone. Um, and so, we go in, this is like, we figure it's going to be a really bad, hot shit target. We go in with all ammo, one canteen of water. And um, we took two other team members. We took a guy from S3 who was an expert on the Air Force sensors. The three had a central unit and it had a coaxial cable that went out to two other sensors. All had to be buried to just the uh, antenna up in the vegetation. And they could monitor the traffic on the trail. No firefight. We inserted it, left, and one uh, NVA opened up with a 50, 50 caliber at us, and he wiped him out with napalm. They wiped him out a couple of times. We had TAC air all stacked up, but nobody wanted to, you know, they fought when they wanted to fight. No. And then we put in the Air Force sensors again, and we had the monsoon season on for, for a few weeks. And then in September, we did another insertion of that device up by Quezon on Highway 9. And then, um, and by that time, Spider Parks and the guys are like going, hey man, you've run three or four missions. You don't even have a CIB yet. Now you're going to be the only Green Beret that's going to go through your year in NAM and secret, in the secret war here with no CIB. I'm going, that's cool with me. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, then we had that mission uh, in uh, Echo 4 where we were in contact for four hours. And that all changed. We earned a CIB there. I bet. I'm going to ask you specifically about that, but the sensors, that was a very sensitive thing for a number of years, um, obviously, but the technology of the day, and uh, we may or may not have done some similar things, uh, you know, years ago with my generation, but um, what, what powered those things back then? What did you, what was powering those, those sensors? I assume they're all battery, Jack, because yeah. at that point I was the uh, radio operator on the team. And we were and Spider, and we had the guy from S3, and then we had the one zero, the team leader from uh, ST Rhode Island. His name was Les Daniels. He was uh, he was an Indian, and I forget what tribe it, but he was slick, a phenomenal operator, and he had inserted others. Mm -hmm. So he came along with the team. So for the actual insertion, I just did security. I was on the north end of the team. And I was there with HEP, our interpreter. And then Don Wolken was on the south end of the operation. And, and the guys put it in. So I never, I assumed batteries. Yeah, yeah. And I never looked at it. Cause like. Hey, you're, 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 you're still a new grade. guy, right? You're still a new guy. Yeah, as yeah. soon as you're told. I'm oh, yeah, holding my sector here. Uh, so how does that, that four hour firefight, how does that, how does that start? What's the initial contact there? 
Well, you know, we had um, we had inserted the day previous. And again, <laughs> here's our op temple there. On October the 5th, 68, despite Team Alabama, nine men came up against a 10,000-man NVA unit. And later, one of the survivors talked to the NVA general that ambushed him that day. And they said they inflicted 90% casualties between the recon team and the air assets. They inflicted 90% casualties on that. So it's 9,000 enemy hurt, killed, or missing in action. We lost three. Jeez. October 6th, and every next day, we insert. We had trackers, couldn't lose them. The next day, we moved. And around about 2 o'clock, um, we saw two enemy soldiers that were behind us. We had to go out on a little trail to get up this mountain. It was really rugged. We looked back and saw two NVA. may have been Chinese because they were big. Mm. And they were standing there with their AKs just smiling at us. I'm going like, told Don, we got to the top of a little knoll. And about a half hour later, they hit us wave after wave. But fortunately, the knoll was small enough that they could only bring so many people out of the jungle at one time at us. Jeez. So we kept stacking them up. And we were in contact for maybe hour and a half, two hours before we made contact with TAC Air. And then we started uh, uh, doing the gun runs, napalm, fast movers. And we were fighting right down to last light when a king bee came in and hovered for 10 minutes. And he waited for us and uh, he pulled out. We were down to our last magazine, last grenade. And the last round for our sawed-off M79. Jeez. Yeah, because at one point, Don Walton, who was the team leader then, pointed to me and said, look. And he pointed the one area of the jungle they kept coming at us out of. He said, they're stacking up the bodies over there. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get the bodies high enough they can shoot down at us. I go, whoa. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Luckily, and I was just like... Uh, it was just mind-boggling to think that they would keep, and they kept coming right to the end. You know, even as the, as the King Bee, Captain Tin hovered for 10 minutes. And as they hovered, uh, we're getting to the helicopter, throwing the guys in. They're coming at us, and there's gun runs around us, and we're able to get out. Captain Tin came back a couple of days later. That helicopter had um, 48 holes in it from different rounds, different size. And none of us got hit, only wow. by the grace of the Lord again. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and we like to talk about working with our indige. Well, Sal was our counterpart. And when I first met him in May, when Spider introduced me to the team, he goes, Meyer, <laughs> he goes, he's too tall, his feet are too big, <laughs> and he looks stupid. <laughs> well, I didn't learn that too many months later, but um, when, uh, on that flight back, Sal looked at me and went, mm. and that was like, I cherished that moment in time. Amazing. Absolutely. We, we, we are officially on a team then. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a long answer to a short question, Jack. No, I totally, yeah, I, I can, yeah. That, uh, that nod from someone with, the, with experience who you respect, oh, yeah. um, uh, who has skills, character, that, that means, that means the world. Um, what was the first indication then on that one that you guys were being tracked? Like before you saw those two guys with AKs, did you know, you already knew that, uh, that someone was, was, was tracking you? We heard, yeah. Cause they, 
uh, in that part of Laos, they had trackers and they would try to direct you sometimes. And other times they have signal shots that we didn't understand what they were. You would just mm. hear an AK or an SKS go off in different areas. Mm. So we tried to get on with our mission, which was our, we had a, uh, an area target. Our, our secondary mission was to try to find an American POW camp. And that's what we really wanted to get to. Wow. And we had wow. general reports on that. And that's what our, we really hoped to get there, at least located, and to come back to make an effort to free the prisoners. Jeez. But when we made contact, then it just goes from mission to survival. You know what that's like. Right. Yeah, it's mission changes. Yes, um, sir. Man. And when you got there, was there an overall, what was your mission there? Uh, like, did you have, did you have an overall type of a, of a, uh, uh, commander's intent for your, an area that you were focused on or a, uh, specific, um, something you were trying to degrade as far as, uh, enemy capability or what were you, or were you just stacking up, stacking up enemy bodies? Like what was the, what was the overall mission for you guys as it was articulated to you by your leadership? Well, by 68, we had six, we called them FOBs. You mm -hmm. guys called them FOBs. Mm -hmm. So starting up north, the FOB one at Fubai, two was Kantum, was Kaysan for a while. Then they moved it to Mylock after the Marines closed Kaysan. FOB four was Da Nang, and two was, uh, FOB two was in Kantum, which is two core. And then we had FOB five and six that were further south that ran Cambodia targets only. Mm. Uh, FOB2 did both Cambodia and Laos, and then one, uh, one, three, and four were strictly Laos or North Vietnam or DMZ targets. And we, the missions that uh, we would be assigned to be anything from a wiretap to blowing up NVA fuel lines, uh, area recon, point recon, BDAs, like you're familiar mm. with a BDA. Battle damage assessment. assessment and uh, prisoner snatches. The best source of intel is prisoner snatches. Now, we never had any luck with it. We came really close a couple of times. And we had one of our guys, Dick Meadows, out of Contoon. He actually picked up 12 or 13 POWs during his tour of duty Amazing. in SOG, which is, to this day, it's an all-time world record. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, his book, The Quiet Professional, is, uh, is fantastic. You know, obviously, legendary, oh, yeah. <laughs> legendary operator, of, of course. Um, gosh, and people heard you mention uh, Ashao Valley. Um, can you talk to people about, because that's what I heard most, almost most about, or what stood out in my mind anyway, from talking to the Project Delta guys that, uh, that mentored me along before I got into the SEAL teams. Um, wh wh where was that? What was it like there? Um, and uh, can you describe that a little bit for people? Yeah, it was um, a long valley that was between Laos and Cambodia, and the border was irregular. So sometimes you, you'd be in Laos, or, and uh, our missions were across the fence, all in Laos, west of the Ashaw Valley. Occasionally, like putting in the Air Force sensors, um, there we were in the, on the Vietnamese side of the border. And uh, so it was long, and I forget how long, but it was... It was our main target area and what was going on west because the Ho Chi Minh Trail came from North Vietnam, came across the DMZ and then south into Laos and there'd be trails into South Vietnam. And of course, why we had the secret war was because our government had entered that agreement where we would not have troops and no combat troops in Laos or Cambodia. The communists said, that, oh yeah, we wouldn't do it, but they did. <laughs> 
by 68, they had 25,000 in Laos and maybe 100,000 in Cambodia. And our, our job was to go see what they're doing just to get intel. And for example, on one of our teams um, before Tet got photographs of tanks and tank tracks west of Lang Ve, which was the northern part, the most northern A camp, A101 at Lang Ve. And nobody in Saigon believed them. It's not until the tanks came out two days later and overran the A camp there. Yeah. Which is another story. whole story in and of itself. It is. There's some artwork that uh, I saw when I was at Fort Bragg uh, years and years ago that uh, depicts that. Um, just incredible. Uh, and, you know, things haven't changed. I mean, from the from the earliest days, you need a place to, uh, you know, we call them the enemy, but, uh, you know, an insurgency or they need a place to rest, refit, recover, oh, yeah. stage operations. Uh, you know, we have Pakistan, obviously, uh, in the in uh, next to, to Afghanistan. Of course, you have Iranian IEDs and EFPs coming across the border into sure. uh, into Iraq, taking a tactical weapon and turning it into one of strategic significance. Um, but uh, you know, they were safe for all practical purposes in in Iran. They were safer in Pakistan um, just because of how hard, uh, I shouldn't say hard, but uh, what it took to get approvals to go after somebody uh, if you had intel that said that they were uh, they were operating out of out of Pakistan. So uh, they're very similar. I mean, there's so many similarities to what you did in Vietnam oh, to what we did all these years, all these years later. But um, uh, intel-wise, um, I noticed some similarities there too, just because of my, my study of Vietnam study of what SEALs did there, what army special forces did there, uh, generating your own Intel off of the, some of those prisoner snatches you talked about Dick Meadows doing. Um, but, uh, how are you getting your Intel for, for these targets or how are they, how are they chosen? And you did a wide variety of missions from the attempted prisoner snatches to the sensor right. emplacements to the, the recon to all these different things. But um, for the most part, how are you, how are you generating intelligence and, uh, and planning these missions? Well, it, it, we had radical extremes mm -hmm. as in November, we had, uh, we had minimal teams that were available. So in the morning, they'd give us a target. And the cubby would go pick an LZ, primary, secondary, and alternate. We would go out and get shot out of all of them, have lunch. There's <laughs> a new target. You look at it, and then you go do the same thing. Compared to when we were down south, we were TDY down to FOB6 for a couple of weeks at Thanksgiving. It was 68. And there they had DIA, CIA intel reports. They lost three NVA divisions. The first, the third, and the seventh were MIA. Tet was just around the corner. <clears throat> so they were really worried. And uh, we had everything. We had all those reports. We had photographs of the area. The first photographs taken from either um, a U2 or the first time the Blackbirds were used. Nice. The, uh, the, no the SR-71. Yeah. But we saw these pictures. It's like, holy shit. We never had that up north. <laughs> so that was really a mission prepared. We estimated where they were. The good news is we went in and we found, we estimate one or two of the divisions that were there. We literally walked into a base camp where one division had just left, another one is coming back, and they chased us back to the LZ and uh, just barely made it out of there alive on Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving so that's Day. the one part where the intel really paid off. A lot of other times, the intel folders up north would vary from uh, old reports or old statistics. And okay. sometimes they even change the name of the target. 
Because like we would know the team targets where teams got hurt, like Oscar eight was our worst target. So once in a while they changed it to like Tango six or something. You go like, wait a minute, I just saw the map here. This is Oscar eight. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Trying to play some psychological. Oh, yeah. yeah, interesting. Uh, and how are the maps that you guys had back then? Did you guys like um, were they made specifically for you for uh, for Vietnam, for Laos, Cambodia, or were there some uh, some older maps? Or what? Because obviously there's no Google Earth back then. Um, yeah, the so, one in fifty. Okay. And, they, and they, what they did was they have a map of Laos on our target. Mm-hmm. Then they cut out a six by six box, so we'd be inserted. And so if we got shot, the only thing we'd have on our body because we had <clears throat> no identifiers, no dog tags, no name tags, nothing. Because the government had to have plausible deniability if anybody got our body or if we were mm-hmm. captured. And uh, so that's what we carried with us. And uh, um, just before that specific target area, but it would be cut out by S2 and given to us by S3 during the briefing. I mean, so, I mean I'm, I'm so fascinated by, by all of this. And it's such an sort of honor to talk to you. And you capture, you're not just your stories, you're capturing other people's stories as well from this time frame. Um, and, uh, and here's chapter one real quick on, uh, on, on the ground, the secret war in Vietnam. Um, you say by June, 1968 staff Sergeant Pat Watkins had been running recon for seven months and had some, and had seen some of the worst of what that could entail. In fact, the run of luck Sog had experienced from December, 1967 to April, 1968 had been about the cruelest you could imagine. Of the 14 team leaders who had started out running recon with him in late 1967, only four remained alive and active. I mean, that, imagine, imagine that today. I read that and I was thinking, what if that was today? What if we were sending guys into Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, that's, your, that's your team leader? Uh, that, that's your group of team leaders, your peer group. 14 go in and only a few are still alive um, you know, months, year later. Um, when you talk about those those casualties, was that just something that was expected or just became your norm? It's amazing what becomes your normal. Uh, and it doesn't have to be just military. It can be anything in life, obviously. But um, did you go in there expecting to be wounded or killed? Did you think that you were going to you're going to make it home. What were guys guys thinking when you're looking at casualties like that, casualty rates like that? Well, it, it played on your mind, but like when we when we got into the base in May of '68, when our team was wiped out, by that time there had been several other teams that had been wiped out. We had one team, ST Alaska, where everybody was killed except for the one zero who E and E, and he was in camp, and we had men that were talked about the other teams disappearing or what had happened. So the first thing you did was talk to Covey, who was our attack, I mean, our facts, our forward air controls, our mm-hmm. code name was Covey. So we talked to the Covey riders and the way they worked there, you had a, an O2 with the Air Force pilot. And then we had a Green Beret experienced on the ground flying as a Covey rider. And then that way, when we had contact, we talked to the Green Beret in the Covey. Mm-hmm. And he would coordinate things uh, through the airstrikes and everything else. Occasionally, we would talk directly to the aircraft if there was no cubby. Yeah. Um, but um, so by 68, we had a mission on Christmas Day. It was very hairy. At the end of it, I'm, I took a shower. And as I'm walking back to the hooch, Silent Night was playing on this little tinny radio. And I remember standing there going, God, I've been on the ground now 
several times, many times. And I, I really wondered if I was going to see my 23rd birthday. This is Christmas, 1968. And my birthdays, me and Robert E. Lee, January the 19th. Wow. I really didn't think I was going to see it because I knew we had a couple more missions coming up. But, you know, the recon guide smiled on us. We got through it. Thanks to air cover, South Vietnamese on my team, fearless in nature. And uh, I'd rather be lucky and good any day, Jack. <laughs> I've heard that one before. That's for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. And when you're, uh, when you're, what weapons are you taking in? Uh, was it a standard loadout or did it like, then here's what we were talking about earlier for those that, uh, there you can see, I don't know if you can see that or not, but actually better to just get the book across the fence, get this book. And then you can <laughs> see the picture for, uh, for real. But, uh, you know, you have that, that car 15, a 20 round magazine. Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, and some, I know some people won't even want, took like what some tens and and stuff like that. Even you can get lower to the ground. I heard some stories about that. But you have a twenty round magazine. You got the uh, M seventy nine, and there's the one that's cut off that we would call the pirate gun. Um, <laughs> yeah, is that is that a, a Browning high power? Uh, you got a Claymore, still the same today. Uh, that oh, thing yeah. has not changed. Uh, a mini grenade, which interestingly enough, uh, we got in the in the early days, and we, we might still have them. Um, I don't know, but not the regular grenades that uh, most people get. With the mini right. grenades, they were pretty pretty cool. Uh, although I'd rather throw a bigger one. Um, Me too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it was cool, uh, and then I was like, ah, I'm going back to the bigger ones, and I always carried one on my belt. Um, but uh, and I actually carried on my belt. Um, Kind of like you carry a conceal, like a, a pistol concealed, because oftentimes later on I'd have to take off my body armor, go to a you know a CIA or embassy type of a of a thing, and you wouldn't be all you know geared up with everybody else sure. in polo shirts and you know khakis or whatever or jeans. So I always had my Sig, always had the P two six right there, always had an extra extra mag, and I always had a grenade as well, sure. just just in case. And I didn't wear it around my neck or anything, but I kind of, you know, kept those things a little bit, uh, on the down low, um, especially around state department people. Um, but, uh, well, you, you don't want to scare them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> actually I had some great relationships from state department people, but, uh, but yeah, for the most but, part, better to keep that stuff under wraps. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, is this, uh, it was, was that your, your, your loadout? Did you carry, uh, the the car 15, what was your loadout magazine wise? Did everybody carry an M79 or just a couple people, the comm guy all carried it? How did that work? All all the, the, yeah, all the Americans always carried sawed off M79s. Okay. And then Lynn Black, uh, he introduced us to the 148 and that was the grenade launcher, the first grenade launcher that could attach to the uh, car 15. Okay. I didn't like it because it yeah. could get hung up in the jungle, but Lynn liked it. Okay. And of course, he was just, he was amazing with that weapon. Um, so for my load, it would be 600 plus rounds for the car, 10 to 12 rounds for the M79, and 10 to 12 hand grenades, plus the radio and the battery. And then my I have one of the team members carry an extra battery. Yeah. And uh, so that's my basic loadout. Once we we carried the 22 standard with a silencer, because mm -hmm. we're hoping to get a prisoner. And uh, and then the team would carry claymores, C4 for ambushes and if we're set up for a night for our RON, the rest overnight slot. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, that's all I carried. Other guys would carry different weapons. Later on, more of our guys began carrying RPDs for What's more firepower. Uh, RPD. Mm -hmm. What's that one? The Russian machine gun. Ah, okay. And they sawed it off. They sawed off the barrel right down to the end and they would saw off 
I think they sawed off the uh, the shoulder guard. Okay. But to a point, but because they wanted more firepower. Got it. And uh, yeah, because like Eldon Bargewell, um, during his second tour of duty, he carried an RPD. Okay. And the day he earned his DSC, he got shot in the face and still covered the teams they got out on a helicopter and he did it with his RPD. <sighs> Stories are incredible. And you talk about them like it's just a normal day, which I mean, for you guys, it uh, essentially was. Um, well, yeah, you have one of your funny stories with Eldon. He had been in Laos. They got into a base camp where they just stayed behinds. So Eldon wanted to capture a POW. And during the first couple hours on the ground, he came across an NVA vest because they went to the command center and began getting documents out and they're collecting them to take out. He saw this NVA vest. He puts the vest on, and a short while later, he sees this NVA. He wants to capture him. The guy wouldn't surrender, so Eldon chased him into a tunnel. And when he got inside, the guy turned around, shot him with an AK. The round hit his vest and knocked him down. Anyway, he got out. Well, that night, he's back with Lynn Black and I on our hooch. <laughs> he goes, yeah, that son of a bitch shot me in the chest. I thought I was dead. But then I was lying there going, if I'm thinking, I'm thinking, therefore, I must be alive. Oh, my Just God. Just another day of sod. <laughs> I mean, legendary. You well, know. yeah, two days later, he and the Frenchman flew to Hawaii where, where he met his son for the first time. Wow. Yeah, go from that, think you're dead, and then he met his son, his oldest boy. Incredible. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean. Did anybody carry a Swedish K? How, you have a Swedish K story, I know. Somebody who came into the, the hooch one night, a medic, I think, and you know, you know put, put the finger on the trigger and let loose, <laughs> put a couple holes in the and hooch. He just forgot. He just forgot <laughs> it was fire from the open bolt. Uh -huh. well, the same medic came well, on that one. He didn't hit anybody. But a few weeks later, he came back in, and Spider had put a scope on his car 15. So uh -huh. we're like, hot shit. Here's yeah, a scope yeah. and everything. So the medic, who has to remain name was here because he yes, can't yes. defend himself anymore uh he picked it up sighted through and fired another burst of automatic oh my god it went through the window went through one of the uh barracks behind us and shot one of our indig oh and the sergeant major came in pissed he goes you shot him you go fix him <laughs> yeah it probably be a little different different handled differently today i can only imagine but uh oh. Uh, today, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Crazy. Um, there's a, uh, there's something else. So I wanted to read here that was different than today. Um, oh, just opened it right here. Uh, which, which speaks to that actually. Uh, the duo walked into McGovern's room. He opened his locker and pulled out a clean car 15 and handed it to the Frenchman. This is a special car 15. He said, according to the official army records, this car 15 was written off as a combat loss at Bob three Quezon. Meaning, as far as the Army's concerned, this weapon doesn't exist. Someday, after a successful tour of duty in Vietnam, if you're so inclined, you can take this baby home with you because it doesn't exist. But, as you can see, it does, and it's a secret weapon. It never failed me, and I know that since you're a weapons man, you'll take good care of it. Yeah, that probably wouldn't happen today, but I <laughs> love this. I mean, this is, uh, I wish stuff like this still happened today. Um, but everybody probably uh, go to jail if, uh, if, you know, if it ever did. But, uh, I mean, I love, I love that because it just speaks to how different you guys were than anyone else really in the military at the time. Incredible. A little bit unorthodox. 
I love it. I love it. And I did wear my Seiko today for you. Uh, watch. Nice. I got mine from oh, nice. 67. No kidding. No yes. way. Let me let me see that a little closer. A friend of mine got it for me. No. And so I wore it today just for that, just for our interview. Oh, no way. That's hilarious. That's awesome. I didn't know you were going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find, uh, when I come up for air, I'm doing edits on uh, my fifth novel right now, uh, moving Indeed. a bunch of other stuff, but I need to, I, I need to like, uh, have someone or me myself take some time, put everything else to the side and track down some of the watches from, uh, Vietnam era. Um, and, uh, and see if I can, uh, see if I can find any and, uh, and add them to my collection. Well, I love my Seiko because it was the first time it was a self wine. So, yep. you, you know, you wound it all the time and then it had the date. And the and the day on it. Oh, yours has and the day like, on it. Nice. I've seen yeah. those. Yeah, this one just has the date. It tells me it's Thursday. It's the twenty seventh, and it was luminous dial at night. I had to keep my glove over because it, it was so mm. bright. Nice. But always made my combo check at midnight when the uh, command control aircraft flew by. Check in, give them a double click, let them know team okay. Double click, still the same today. Oh, yeah. uh, Absolutely, <laughs> that's fantastic. What? Uh, so, who gave you that one? Did you? Uh, did you guys get issued those, or did you? Did somebody? We were, we were issued. Oh yeah. Okay. We were issued that the Sog knife, Car Fifteen. Of course, in in early '68, Car Fifteens were scarce. They're hard to come yeah. by. But when it came time to run a mission, Spider was able to track one down for me. So I have my own. And then I uh, had one mission where I left all my gear in Laos. I had passed out in Laos. So the guy picked me up, threw my gear down, ah, including my sog knife. Oh. And it's still in layoffs somewhere. Oh, I gotta go find it. Man. I know. No, no kidding. Yeah, I uh I, I liberated this one from uh they were actually destroying them when I got to the the SEAL team. Um and yeah. they were destroying, I don't know why. I mean, they actually had a hammer like out back destroy. Oh. Once again, bureaucracy and its uh, supply, I, I don't know. But I yeah. managed to I managed to, to rescue one. Hostage rescue, my first hostage rescue right here, successful. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know why they why they did that. I think somebody got an old Tudor. So like the, you know, the Rolex-ish uh, from, oh, yeah. I don't think it was from Vietnam era, but I think it was from the 80s, I want to say maybe. But they were destroying those things too. And before I got there, otherwise- no. I would have done a full on like night raid to, uh, to try to, 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 to liberate those. But, um, but yeah, I think a friend, <laughs> I think a friend, um, but here's the difference. I told that story about the tutors and it wasn't even mine. I heard it, you know, secondhand. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she was talking about the supply people destroying them and how he grabbed one and gave it as a gift, to his father, who was a Vietnam veteran. Um, and I told this th thinking I'm talking to, it was a captain at the time. Uh, and I think I was a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander and I'm telling it to somebody cause he's, you know, kind of a weapons guy for an officer, you know, that as good as you can get for, for an officer anyway, as far as that stuff goes. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell him this story and I see his face change and he was, he said, I forget exactly what he said, but, uh, it was something along the lines of how that's just not, uh, you know, taking military property. I mean, it was going to get destroyed with a hammer and he's giving it to his dad as a gift and preserving some history. And all in my mind, I'm thinking like, what a, Sure. I mean, I just like in my head, I'm like, okay, I know where you stand. So that would not be one of the guys that's handing over the, uh, you know, the car 15 to take, to take home with right. you, uh, because it means so much <laughs> ah, crazy. Um, and, uh, see, there's another picture in here, uh, with the other gear, um, that you carried. So once again, these books are, I mean, amazing. And I love these, these photos. And I'm so glad that you have preserved them, but, uh, like the, the strobe in here, not that much different than some of the strobes that, uh, that, that we were issued. Yeah. Um, another grenade here and the, the camera. I mean, that would be so cool 
to have that camera today. I mean, there's probably in, in a museum somewhere. I'm sure somebody has one, like UDT Seal Museum or the Museum on Bragg. Oh, nice. No kidding. Yeah, but I uh, don't. Yeah. Yeah. Pentax <laughs> single lens reflex camera. Um, I mean, amazing. Yeah. Another mini grenade again, C4. Um, but I love these old pictures of what you guys carried back then, just um, for the history. And then also because how similar it was to some of the things that, uh, that we would go on to, to carry. Um, but uh, optics wise, um, you, so at partway through, is that the first deployment where uh, you guys start putting optics on the, on your, uh, your car 15s and, and what, what were those? No. We never, uh, actually we didn't, Jack. Um, okay. Or the Frenchman tried it once? Starlight scope, okay. which was huge. It was heavy. And, you know, when you used it, you you destroyed your night vision, your eye. But we used it for in-country ambushes. Okay. So uh, I was just, again, I'm just the one, too. So when we did the in-country ambushes, either Spider or Don Wolken, the assistant team leader, would be on the starlight. Okay. You know, the local villagers were told, don't go here. If you do, you're going to die. And so anybody else that came in, they were an instant target. And, uh, but that was the only time we used them because they're just too big and too cumbersome. Yeah. I mean, and the batteries the... went down fairly quick, of course. Okay. Yeah. So that was the, that was the early days. I mean, we would have gone a long ways to get the knives that you gentlemen had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ours were, were pretty dang good. I'm sure what they have now is even, is even better. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious how, you know, and there's things going on around the world, of course. Um, but I'm curious uh, how gear will continue to develop, especially on the technology front, without the numbers of troops that we once had in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, because we did see from September 11th um, up until we left, really, uh, the evolution of gear and incorporating this technology into our night vision, um, into our to our, uh, our our scopes, into our thermals. Um, so that stuff really did. Uh, grow by leaps and bounds after September 11th. Oh yeah, yeah I'm very this is incredible. I mean, everything from the Humvees up to the weapons and personal body armor and camo. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I mean, oh, the yeah. camo gear that they have today. Yeah, so I've been up to fifth group to their to the uh, to a couple of the uh, teams up there, a couple of those A teams, and I go to the comm bunkers. Like this is all like strange this new world stuff it's but it's incredible what they could do of course they got satellites today and everything else yeah. <laughs> we got all that all that stuff um oh, yeah? somebody somebody sent me this the other day and this uh so you had the actual the sog knife like one of the originals incredible and this is like right. this is a k-bar right there but yes. uh I, I, before I say who sent it to me I'm gonna I'm gonna check with them and I want to get some more of the history on it because it just arrived the other day and I mean it's and they, they sent it to me because of the, the history of the, the SEAL teams. And it's even, um, you know, labeled as a, as a Navy uh, K-Bar. Um, oh, is that but, right? Yeah. Not the Marine Corps. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we had some Marine Corps K-Bars, which we used when we, um, and I had a K-Bar later on. Okay. It's after the SOG yeah. knives. Yeah. So right there, USN Mark II, uh, right there. So, <laughs> but you can tell, I mean, it's a, it's a K-Bar, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, uh, that's amazing. Oh, it's a man. nice toothpick. There you go. That's it. That's what you guys used them for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when you think back to uh, to the, your time in Vietnam, do you have a most distinct memory that uh, that you go to, or do you, uh, or a distinct mission that you think back to, and all the amazing things that that you did, all you saw, all you experienced? Um, it depends on the time of year. 
Uh, like Christmas, we had the Christmas Day mission where we almost got uh, Lily got overrun by fire in a firefight. And then Thanksgiving, we had the mission there. We found two or three NBA divisions. So those instantly glam on to. Mm-hmm. And then around October, I always think about Lynn Black because Lynn was on that mission from October 5th to 68. And then our target two days later, where we were in contact for four hours <clears throat> before we got out on, at last light. And, uh, but I think of the little people. We affectionately called our South Vietnamese little people. 115, 120 pounds, soaking wet, and just amazing men, fearless. They always stood tall. We never had to worry about friendly fire with them. And, uh, you know, they were great in the jungle. Like Sal, uh, who was our counterpart, was just amazing. He climbed trees at night or daytime. He did the wiretaps. We had him trained to do wiretaps. And he couldn't speak English. But if I came up to him and gave him an op order, verbal, Mm-hmm. I come back in a half hour and the team be all ready. Whatever mm-hmm. I told them to do, whatever I asked for specifics, if we're going to do a wiretap or a snatch or going for a BDA, um, he would have everybody squared away. It's amazing. And oh, yeah. And all the research that you've done for these books and uh, the talking to, to different people that may have been in country at the same time, maybe not, um, maybe been on your teams, maybe not. Um, are there mis- uh, Is there a mission that stands out uh, going forward. So from 1970 up to, up to today, um, or is there a, a person or multiple people or a, a mission, a situation that stands out to you, something that you weren't involved with, but that you've learned since in doing this writing and well, uh, yeah, writing the, these books? My third book, Saw Chronicles, details Operation Tailwind, where um, the CIA was involved in a major action in the western part of Laos, southwestern part. And they had they were getting hammered by the NBA because this is 19, September 1970. Uh, Cambodia, Premier had left. And the North Vietnamese were coming down for a major push. The CIA had their operation going against them, but they were getting hurt. They said, we need somebody to come in to take the pressure off. So they sent in a hatchet force, which in this case was uh, 120 indigenous troops and 16 Green Berets from uh, CCC, Contoon. Mm-hmm. And they had one medic, Gary Mike Rose. And um, when they were inserted, because they were deeper, they were outside of the AO that we traditionally worked in. They went further west. So they couldn't use King Bees or UEs. They had to use Marine Corps um, CH-53 uh, Deltas. And they took all those 136 men out. And then when they went in, several were wounded. So when the helicopters returned, they already had WIAs aboard. And then the first night they're on the ground, they hit a huge cache center, supplies. And uh, when they're in there, the leader was Captain Gene McCarley. A telephone rang, an NVA telephone rang in their command center. McCarley picked up the phone and he goes, Hello, Fifth Special Forces Group, may I help you? <laughs> See, you can't make this stuff up. That's fantastic. Oh, I know. They were on the ground for four days. They took, oh, oh, out of the 16 Green Berets, there were 32 Purple Hearts issued. And there were more than 50% of the whole force was wounded. The one medic was wounded on the first night on the ground, Mike Rose. uh, An RPD, I mean, an RPG came in and went past the Americans and exploded with the shrapnel coming back. It cut Mike's foot through his jungle boot, 
he was wounded. He still carries a crippled hand from the injury sustained that night. But he went on um, to serve as the medic for all those for those four days, and they hit another uh, supplier command center and again. Took out intelligence documents, destroyed all the weapons, the food supplies. They had tons of food, and uh, they really hurt the NVA on that mission. And uh, when they came out, the last CH-53 that came out was loaded as they're leaving the LZ under heavy enemy fire. The door gunner, or the Marine Corps door gunner, gets shot in the neck. Mike went up and saved this guy's life as the helicopter was flying over the first mountain. One engine went out. As it flew over the second mountain, the second engine went out. The pilot had to do a, uh, you know, it went in without any power. Auto rotation. Auto with a rotation full in. CH-53 Delta, which they never trained on. Went in, and when the impact was so hard, Captain McCarley's teeth were crushed. And he had to require two years of surgery after that mission. And Mike Rose, the medic, was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Trump uh, October 23rd, 2017, at the White House. Incredible. So that's one of the stories that I'd heard a little bit about. And then um, I finally met Mike, met some of the teammates, and one of the attorneys that was working with them. So that's why that book centered on that story. Yeah. No, it's incredible. And then there's a modern connection to this too. And of course, growing up with, uh, you know, reading Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, watching some of the, uh, watching Rambo First Blood Part Two, you're seeing, you know, there's this, this <laughs> Russian involvement in Vietnam. There's trainers, yeah. Spetsnaz, there's all this, this sort of thing. There's connections there, uh, which I have incorporated into my novels as well, because it was so impactful for me, essentially growing up in, in the 80s um, right there. But there's a Russian connection uh, here years later. Um, that oh, yeah. one of the guys that was there makes. And what, what, how did that happen? How did that come about? Well, uh, his, his name is John Doc Paget. He was our medic, um, and he was on a chase ship. On the third day of the mission, when the team was on the ground, he was on a CH-53 Delta that went in to pick up all the wounded. The helicopter came in and was hovering, and Mike Rose was about to hand over the first most seriously wounded soldier in Ditch, and the helicopter got hit. It took off and it eventually had to crash. And so they could not lift out. And uh, so when Doc was returning, another helicopter came in and pulled him out on ladders. There's a picture of them with a CH-53 Delta with Paget and the Marine crew and, and, and the, one of the other medics that were on the helicopter that crashed. And they're on a ladder as they're flying back. There's anti-aircraft fire at the helicopters and at them. 15 or 20 years later, Doc was working with another government agency. He winds up in one of the stands, Pakistan, not Pakistan, but Tajikistan or up yeah, your ass, one of the stands. Yeah. And he's there and he had it on his SF pin and a young Russian lieutenant is sitting there going, oh, you're a special forces. They go back and forth. And John doesn't really want to talk to this guy. But the guy kept insisting. So finally he says, were you ever in Laos? Doc goes, yeah. So my dad was there. Doing what? Well, my dad was, he trained the North Vietnamese on how to do anti-aircraft. So his dad was trying to shoot down Doc Padgett. It's incredible. <laughs> with anti-aircraft fire. And that anti-aircraft, we're like World War II with the yeah. ACAC. Now you've seen um, uh, 
12 o'clock high. And uh, those yeah, movies yeah, yeah. were the been a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's what they're up against. And our aircraft came to that. And like even earlier, the story you pointed to, the first one from on the ground, mm-hmm. when the King B pulled them out after being in battle all day, he had to jute around anti-aircraft fire because, um, you know, they the Russians gave them. We had all kinds of weaponry, and that was always part of the briefing, which was what, how much enemy air to aircraft was in the area, what we knew about, and of course they're always moving. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and and you know since we're talking about Russians, um, <laughs> uh, any of the MIA, do you think that that uh, that Russia, Soviet Union at the time, um, got any of our POWs from uh, from Vietnam? Do you think they were handed over? That's a good question. Um, um, I don't think so. But again, this is just me with my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I do know that the Russians have a lot of information and documentation on our POWs that have not been turned over yet. Yeah. And it's one of the ongoing missions where for years, um, there's the National League of POW MIA families have mm-hmm. worked with our government. And there's another commission that's working with the Russians, allegedly, so depending on who's in charge, so now we got that Putin asshole in there. Um, they're not going to cooperate on much of anything, but we do have information on them as well as uh, airmen that were shot down during the Cold War. Yeah, and there's a couple of great books on that for a separate uh, s- separate stories on yeah. their during the Cold War, the losses that the Air Force and the Army suffered then, and maybe in the Navy, of course, too. So my personal opinion, maybe they got some Americans and they never saw the light of day. I mean, because yeah. Siberia is so far away. And once you're locked away there, just read oh, yeah. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Everybody should, should oh, yeah. read that. Be a little more appreciative of what we, we have in this country. Jeez. Um, um, and I think, I don't know if we talked to, I thought about rope extractions from a jungle, from the jungle, you know, before. <laughs> Um, and cause I, cause I, I've read about them and then I read about them in here and in the, in these books. So can you talk a little bit about that when you're talking about extraction? Is that something that you, you trained on or was it on the job training? I mean, so dangerous. And I know you lost people doing it. Um, can you talk a little bit about rope extractions? It was, it was critical. We did it often. And, um, the reason why we had rope extractions was, um, a lot of times in the jungle, there was not enough room for a helicopter to land. And when you're dealing with triple canopy, it could go up to 150 feet high. So if you had a small hole, the helicopter still couldn't get in and get out with people on the helicopter. So we developed string extractions with rope. And the maximum rope would be, the one that I'm familiar with, would be 150 feet long. And the very early days, they'd have a rope with a sandbag on it and a D-ring tied in at the end. They'd throw it down. We'd be on the ground. You put on a Swiss seat, which is a rope seat around your waist, and a D-ring. You'd hook into it. And then on your web gear, you had a D-ring to hook into. So if you got shot or if you got passed out or if you got, if you, like on occasions when they're coming up to 150 feet to get out of the jungle, the helicopter pilots would hear bullets and they would take off. Well, they hadn't cleared the jungle yet. And then we would be like human pinballs ricocheting off the trees until they got out of the jungle. And we lost men there. We had men seriously injured there. 
But again, it's better than staying on the ground, just getting your ass wiped down. Jeez. Crazy. And so, yes, we practiced long and hard. We, and of course we repelled because there were times when <clears throat> we had to do a bright light or BDA. There's not enough area to land a helicopter. So you'd have to repel into the target. And we did that a few times. Amazing. Yeah. Oh you, yeah. And you operated with legends. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you were with, uh, I mean, you are one of them. You are one of these legends. You operated with with legends, with giants. And one of these guys was the was the Frenchman. And uh, oh. you know, I love that he had that that name. Um, oh yeah. But uh, I mean, there's so many incredible stories uh, with with him. But uh, I'm gonna read this really quickly here. Um, yeah. And uh, Doug the Frenchman Letourneau. Did I say the last name right? Letourneau. Yes, sir. Yep. Was shaking almost uncontrollably. This is crazy. Totally crazy. He thought, where the hell are the seals when you need them? Uh, he yeah. had just crawled out of a small river that was being used by the NVA to float supplies to its troops. The most important of which were hundreds of 55 gallon drums filled with fuel. The fuel was vital to both their ongoing infiltration operations and their future plans to attack the South without fuel. As Hitler had discovered, it is hard to mount much less sustain a military venture. Um, can you talk about, about the, the Frenchman a little bit when you first uh, first met him and some of your memories of him? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, vivid memories. Because when the Frenchman landed at FOB1, life was never the same. <laughs> he was always a little bit loud because he was a little bit hard of hearing. So whenever he had a story, there was always added emphasis to it. But he ran 13 missions. His father had been a, a, a B-17 pilot who flew during uh, World War II. On his 13th mission, his dad got shot down, and he was in a, a squadron of 24 B-17s, which was the point element for a 1,000-plus aircraft that were going to do a bombing run over uh, Swineford. Mm. And his dad had 13 missions. Doug ran 13 missions in SOG. Every mission, he came out on rope, on strings at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just a, he had grown up in Southern California, but he was in the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, and was in their rodeo program, worked with animal, animal husbandry, and he worked with Doctari with their animals. And he had these crazy stories. And plus, by that time, he had broken many uh, bones in his body from being a bull rider, a horse rider. And when he got on the team, he worked with the ST Virginia. And then eventually in the early part of 69 or March 69, he came on Idaho for a couple of our missions. As I cycled out, Lynn Black took over the team and Doug was his one, one. And uh, before he came to Idaho, he had that mission with ST Virginia, which is one of our classic missions. You know, they found the fuel dump well, they, and they had that drum that went down. The CIA gave them the explosive device to put into the drum to blow everything up they wouldn't put it in themselves but they're happy to have <laughs> the frenchman do it <laughs> <laughs> they need to find somebody crazy enough to know, do this sort of thing with Doug, he they were on his very first mission they were on a break and when the team gave the signal to stand up and move out when doug stood up he got shot in the back four times oh. by the nva put him right on his face and doug jumped up ready for a firefight and they were gone because they assumed he was dead. The four rounds went through his PRC-25, through his web gear, through his shirt, and broke skin four times and ran out of energy. 
the rounds went down to his boot. And that night when he was taking a shower, he shook out the boot and threw the four rounds outside. Jeez. Oh, yeah. I mean. The only man to stop back in the back four times and wow. live to talk about. It. So he and Eldon had these stories about when I was shot. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Trying to one-up each other. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, you, the stories are, are so incredible. I'm so happy that you're, you're capturing these because it's inspirational for future generations as well. And I think it lends itself to an appreciation from this generation that's coming up if we can uh, encourage them to read, especially stories like this, and just put down the devices for a few minutes uh, and appreciate all that that you did, that the, the Korean War generation did, that the World War II generation did, the World War I generation did. Going back to the inception of this country, everything that people sacrifice so that we could have these options, opportunities, and freedoms that we have today. Um, so for a kid in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school, college, somebody just out of high school trying to find their way. I mean, reading these stories is, uh, it, it's almost like having a mentor without having an actual person there. Um, because you have a mentor without a tour mentor. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Then you, then you enlist and then you get a couple tormentors, uh, in, there we uh, go. in boot camp. But that's, don't forget, uh, Jack. You, you and Jocko are taking that to another level. There's, there are now, thanks to your podcast, Andy Stump and uh, Mike, that are doing these podcasts. That's an additional level. Because now, since I've done the initial podcast with Jocko, I'm getting feedback from literally around the world. And there are, in fact, there's a young man, a special forces training group right now, who's going to graduate next month, who went in after reading Across the Fence and seeing Jocko's podcast. So I'm going to be there when he graduates. Wow. But we've had kids like this. And I went to a, a graduation in January and had 20 or 30 guys come up. Now, I read your book yeah. or this. Can we get a selfie? Yeah. So there are. This is, there are people that are hearing the stories that come to serve our country. And it makes you really proud because like you guys, we set the bar. You came back and raised it up two or three steps. Each generation improves as they go on. Oh. It's just amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's humbling to be talking to you right now. And when we talk about some of these stories, there's some crazy ones. I mean, <clears> we have some crazy ones. You guys really have some crazy ones. Most of them you probably get course marshaled for today in today's military. For sure, today's. I mean, possibly oh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but for sure, actually today's. Um, but there's uh, <laughs> there's so many, so many great ones here, but there are some, I mean, crazy situations. And uh, this is an interesting one right here. Despite the NVA gunfire, Black ran back to the bamboo thicket where he had left the remainder of the team. Uh, Chung, the ch dying tail gunner, pointed his 45 caliber pistol at the advancing NVA and said, Toyket, I die. He motioned Black to return to the HH-3E before shooting himself. Black was running back to the ship when two NVA stepped onto the trail and pointed their AK-47s at him. Chukhoi, one, one of the soldiers, shouted. Black stretched out his arms and continued walking toward them. When he was only a few feet away, he said, Chukhoi, and the young NVA soldiers appeared surprised. Before they could react, Black grabbed the AK-47s by their searing barrels and stripped them from the soldiers. He backhanded the soldier on the right and smashed the other soldier in the face with one of the weapons. I mean, next level. And this is just oh, one. Oh, yeah. This is just one. I mean, yeah. stories of, what, of one of the other guys <laughs> stepping off the trail with a suppressed 22. you You're being tracked. But the team is being tracked by dogs, uh, or at least a single dog um, that wasn't long for this world. And that's the Frenchman. That's the Frenchman right there. I mean, yeah. incredible. I mean, those stories. My favorite kind of dog, dead. 
for the, of those kind, right. for the ones that are tracking you to kill your team. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, but just thinking on the run, adapting on the run when your life, the life of your team um, is at stake. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, and people heard you talk about mountain yards. You've read about mountain yards. I re- there's a book um, and I was trying to find it right before this. And we have so many things in boxes, but I have it. And I think I got it in about the seventh grade, maybe from Pollard and Press, which was in the middle of Soldier of Fortune magazine. You know, they always have those little inserts oh, in yeah. there where you could order some books. Um, and I forget the name of the book. I think it was called Crossbow. I just remembered it. I think it's called, I think it was called Crossbow. Um, okay. I think, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the Mont Yards and their uh, relationship to Army Special Forces and uh, what that was oh, like sure. over there? Well, the Mont Yards were the tribe people and um, they were called the Mountain Yards because they were the mountain people. And during the evolution of history in Vietnam, the Vietnamese forced out the Mont Yards into the mountains and the hillsides. And um, that's, I, Special Forces went in, and we learned about the Montagnards. We trained them, and once they were trained up, they were just absolutely fearless. And, uh, you know, my team was all South Vietnamese. You never mixed uh, races. So you have a South Vietnamese, Montagnard, Nungs, Cambodian, and uh, those were the different type of indigenous personnel we worked with. And so the Montagnards, um, the, one of the lowest tribes was the Brew. And some of our teams were composed of them. Now, in the very beginning, we learned early on, they could not throw a hand grenade worth a shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they would fight and they would fight to the bitter end. And um, they were just wonderful. They lived in the hills and we would train them everything from how to have a better village to recruiting them for our missions. And um, once they were trained up, you couldn't ask for a better soldier. And it's just like with you guys being in Afghanistan or Iraq, once you train good people and they're there with you, that's the force multiplier that can go out and we can continue to train more people to do it. That's one of the traditions over generations that's just really outstanding because uh, now, particularly since August 16th, we've met some Afghanis who are just amazing. Yeah. We have stories here that we come back and talk later on another day about that. But wonderful people. Yeah. So the Montagnards were, um, in a way, almost cute. And they would, they would smile. You just be, you just never think of them as a stone killer that they were, but yeah. on the ground across the fence, they were there and they never backed down Amazing. and they would die first before they let you get hurt. When you were over there meeting them, training with them, fighting with them, did you ever think, Hey, what's going to happen to these guys? Um, did you ever think we were going to leave? Um, Vietnam. Uh, did you ever think that we were going to leave the way we we did? And did you worry or think about um, what was going to happen to some of the people that you were working with over there, the indigenous people? Absolutely. Uh, it happened to me twice because I had two tours. At the end of my first tour of duty, I had a guilty conscience. And at the time, I, I had a sweetheart back home. So I definitely wanted to get back. I did my 12 months, glad to still be physically alive. And Lynn Black took over Idaho with the Frenchman. So I knew that the South Vietnamese would be in good hands. I never worried about Lin at all. In fact, he probably ran it better than I did. And uh, when I came back, so when I came back, Lin was the one zero. I got orders cut so I could get back to CCN, Da Nang, got back on Idaho in October of 69 with Lin. And then he ran the team because a lot had changed in five months. Mm. 
And then we took turns. I ran one mission. He ran one. Then they said, you guys got too much experience. They pulled Lynn off for some special missions. And then I took over uh, Idaho again. At the end of April, we had one mission where me and the CEO had a major confrontation. Mm. Basically, so I'm going to end your career in special forces, be out of camp by tomorrow morning. It's a long story before that. But anyways, that night, I gave the team the money. They went down, bought all the food, booze. And we ate and drank deep into the night. Eventually, every team member passed out. And Hep was the last one. My interpreter was there. And he said to me, my, do you need me anymore? I said, no. He laid down and passed out right in front of me. So I picked up Hep. I dusted him off, <laughs> went into the team room, put him in bed. And then I walked back to my hooch. And now in answer to your question, it's like, excuse my French, but fuck me to tears. What is going to happen to these guys afterwards? Now, this is April 1970, <clears throat> five years away from April 30, 1975, when Saigon fell. And uh, a lot of recriminations and regrets on what our country did, similar to what we went through here August 16th. Mm -hmm. And there's so much parallels, there's so many parallels between then and what you all have gone through, you can't imagine. Yeah. And there's like a, a deep, profound empathy for every Afghani vet from Iraq and Iraqi vets that have been there. You know, my stepson was WIA there uh, August 20th, 2005. He was a scout attached to the third ID and some dumb lieutenant kept sending them out on the same time every day. And he finally got hit. Yeah. And then a relief force that came in got hit. And so he has a deep affection for the, uh, Iraqis that he worked with, they were just outstanding. His interpreter was just like mine, completely fearless. Yeah. Amazing men. And uh, so you all were exposed to that from your side. And uh, just watching what happened August 15th was like, oh, my God, I can't believe. I know. All for political expediency. Yeah. We call it uh, rushing to our death. You know, we used to call it that in the SEAL teams. Don't rush to your death. Like, uh, you know, take Indeed. a breath, look around, make that call, um, adapt. But it uh, seems like we did that strategically, strategically and tactically by giving up Bagram and putting our troops in a less advantageous uh, uh, position um, that they didn't need to be in. But um, oh, yeah, a lot, a lot of parallels. But I thought about that early on. You know, I thought about in Afghanistan, I'm there in 2003 and I'm, uh, you know, talking to these, these people that are on our side for the time being, uh, knowing the history of Afghanistan, uh, knowing how they, they switch sides, uh, have a history of switching sides, which is just normal to them. Um, but then also knowing what, uh, how we worked with the Kurds before knowing that, uh, uh, your experience in Vietnam, uh, working with indigenous and, uh, just thinking, oh man, even back then, Hey, someday. Um, we're going to leave here and they are going to, they're going to, these guys are going to pay that bill. Uh, not just them, but their families. Cause that's what happens over here. It's not oh, just yeah. you. It's your I mean, family. I knew it. I worried about it. And then when April 30th hit, I was in the, at the time I was working at a local newspaper and I just went in the men's room. I just sat there and like for so long, just like tears in my eyes. I just couldn't believe it. And now like Sal, my hero, he was able to go back to Saigon get a job pulling one of those uh, little personnel carts where you carry people around. Yeah. He ducked and dodged the NVA where some of our King B pilots were picked up and they knew who they were. They were Captain Tin who saved me on, on uh, August the 3rd. He saved John Walton and his team 
Um, he was in a re-education camp 13 and a half years. When he finally gets out, they take him to North Dakota. He got a job in a factory working up there. And several of our King Bee pilots, all of whom time and again saved our bacon. Yeah. And they were put to those re-education camps and, and several made it back to the States, but like Sal never got out. We had we tried to get some efforts going for money, but just between the money, the complete corruption in the system and the communists, Hep was the only one, my interpreter was the only one to get out. Jeez. It's, I'm, I'm, and I'm, you know, going forward, I'm sure it won't be the last time things like that, uh, things like that happen. Just looking back, uh, looking back in history. Oh man. And you talked a little bit about R and R you talked about bringing, bringing some beer into the camp, the guys passing out. Uh, and I love this, another picture in here. It's you, it's you guys playing, uh, playing football in this blurry photo right here. You got tiger stripe, uh, pants on. And, uh, you know, I saw that photo and I was, just thinking, uh, you know, thinking back to my time and thinking Ramadi, we're just in a dusty little parking lot on base there and, and uh, playing football, yeah. you know, just like that. Shirts and skins and, um, you know, surprised more people didn't get uh, <laughs> get hurt doing that because, uh, you know, we, you know, you, you start off just playing, we're going to play a little light game. But no, no, no. It, uh, Australian rules quickly appear and, uh, and it, yeah. it, gets, it gets chaotic. Um, but you want to hear a quick little sidebar on that? Absolutely. We're playing a game of football. And one day, one of our, uh, one, of, one of the defensive guys blitzed the quarterback. Yeah. Well, in that split instant, the quarterback forgot that he was a quarterback and he thought the guy blitzing him was an enemy. Oh, geez. He turned on the guy. He grabbed him, Jack, pushed his head down and put, put him into the ground so that his neck would break. Fortunately, we were playing in the sand. Had it not been the sand, that Green Beret would have been killed. But the quarterback from his training with the hand-to-hand combat, he saw that guy coming at him, dropped the football and grabbed him and put him head down. We were all like, WTF, what did we just see here? That's one way to stop a blitz. Right. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's go back to playing chess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this one's great too. And on the ground. Um, but it also, it talks about another similarity. We've talked about a lot of similarities, weapons, gear, mindset, tactics, like all oh, these yeah. things. We share so many similarities, the outcomes. Um, but, uh, <laughs> chapter 19, the primal salute and uh, the Ooh. first chapter here. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it may come as a tremendous shock to some that recon types when not otherwise engaged in mission mayhem, tended to get into trouble. <laughs> hmm. Sounds familiar. Uh, they were not housebroken, <laughs> quote unquote. In fact, they were not even acceptable to what passed for polite company in other military units. Left to their own limited designs in camp, they could always be counted on to manufacture an incident that, while either totally reasonable or funny as hell, would invariably strike someone else, such as an officer, as insane or in bad taste. Uh, and then you go on to talk about this, uh, yeah, somebody hitting an officer, which happened uh, early on in Afghanistan with a friend of mine. But, uh, but once again, those, those similarities, training hard, uh, working hard, playing hard, um, which uh, oftentimes also lends itself to, I think, a little bit tougher transition into the, the private sector. At least that's what I saw uh, in, in the SEAL team, seeing guys leave and uh, oh, tr- yeah. try to keep Let's running go. hard on the outside and uh, try to recreate some of the some of the feelings and emotions that they had being attached to, to small units, going down range, doing this job, not worried about anything else, living on the edge. 
Um, and then they try to continue doing that uh, when they're out. And you add now some traumatic brain injury, of course, with all the the, the IEDs oh, yeah. that uh, the guys had to had to deal with, um, some PTSD issues, uh, ambient dependence, working at night over there, so your sleep cycle is totally reversed. Um, add some alcohol to that, some marital problems to that. I mean, you have these issues that are not uncommon. And, uh, I was curious about transition when you, when you got back, um, did you have a hard time making the transition or did you observe other people having a hard time making transition? And it was harder to stay in touch back then. Like now it's easier with cell phones and text messages and social media and all that. So you can have these connections, but, um, what were the years like for you, uh, when you got back? Well, um, when I came back, you know, again, my family was there first and foremost, welcoming and uh we had friends from church because none of the guys i served with everybody went different directions and as you said there is minimal comma then um and so i went right to work i had a job uh driving school bus in fact <laughs> one of my first school bus rides i had a this is with integration going on now had a busload of young kindergarten first second graders black take them into the white section of Trenton, Chambersburg. We got rocked and stoned on the way in. <clears throat> and I'm there without my car 15. Ooh. But, um, but in my case, I really, I knew I flunked out of college. So I went right back to college to earn my credits back. The courses that I flunked and uh, got involved with that working. And um, we put together a POW MIA concern center on, on campus. So between that, the work and a couple of, um, of uh, unique uh, girlfriends I had at the time, we were really busy. And I got involved with the student newspaper and I became the editor for two years. So I was there every day, every night for two years. Wow. And then uh, graduated, got a job at the local paper. And it was that transition just staying busy because I knew I wanted to get on with life. I just didn't know what I wanted because my first interview, uh, I went to the Mack truck. They said, said, hey, um, I want to get some training in Mack trucks. They said, we don't train people. We sell trucks. I said, what's your job skill? I said, well, I can bring napalm in to make you sweat. I can do a gun run to right up to your doorstep. Well, no, 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 no. What do you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, so uh, we looked around for work, but got involved. Then we had the GI bill. We got $200 a month, whether you went to Harvard university or whether you went to Trenton state college as mm -hmm. I did. And, uh, and so we had a little extra chump change yeah. to help out with the bills and make the money driving school bus. Right. You know, I think that, uh, mission, you know, the, mission focus, they're those like, exactly, exactly. I think that's the, that's the way to do it. Um, it's like the world war two generation. Like they got home and what did they do? They got to work for the most part uh, and built this country into to what it is uh, today. Um, but uh, they got to work. And I think that is so important is to, as you make the transition, is to get out, find that next mission, find that next purpose, realize it's not going to be the same as what I had in the SEAL teams. And that's okay. It's a new chapter. Yeah. That's foundational. That's a part of my life experience, whether it's good or bad, successes, failures, whatever it is, um, that makes me who I am as this foundation. But it makes that's what it's called a foundation in order to move forward, to build upon it. And that's what, uh, what you did. So I, I absolutely love that, uh, that, that you one did what you did, but also you did what you did when you got home, because it's inspirational, what you did downrange. And then also how you came back, went back to school, got to work, did it. And now you're sharing these stories. 
Well, yeah, and thank God for the family, you know, and and the friends from church that were always there. And uh, we may have consumed a little extra alcohol, and there were times (laughs) we missed the adrenaline high. You know, like I had a section on the highway in a snowstorm. I remember driving it. Whenever it snowed, I'd go out, do 110 miles an hour, because you could drive and see the snow in your back mirror of the clouds that would come up. It was really cool. So it's just like one of my little adrenaline rushes. You just had to still get it somewhere. Still getting after it. Still and getting body after surfing. it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we touched briefly on uh, on MIAs, missing in action, uh, POWs, oh. prisoners of war. Um, I wanted to ask you about Larry Thorne, but before sure. I did that, I wanted to read this. It says, as it's from your website, from the Sog, Sog Chronicles, as of October fifteenth, twenty seventeen, yeah. there were nearly three hundred Americans still missing in Laos, MIA, and of those, fifty were Green Berets from the eight-year secret war fought across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. At least 105 airmen died supporting SOG teams in Laos. Of the men known to be prisoners of war, only a few returned home alive. No MACV SOG POWs were released from Laos. Wow. Incredible. Oh, yeah. Larry Thorne. What, uh, tell us a little bit about him. Well, he, uh, he came to America after a, an amazing career fighting communism in Finland. He fought the communists, the Russians, before World War II. During World War II, as a German, he fought the Russians. And he was highly decorated with, the, I forget what it's called, but there's the highest no. decoration in Finland, which he received for his efforts against communism. And um, because he served with the Germans fighting the communists, not that he fought Allied forces, but he strictly fought the communists. Um, he was he had all these issues. Eventually, he comes to America with his experience through um, the Lodge program. He came to America, learned about special forces, and then he ended up in SOG. Sadly, he was one of our our first KIA on a mission. Whereas his is in a, a a chase helicopter, which crashed and burned, and so he was our first KIA in SOG, and the team got inserted without an issue, and they ran a good mission, but uh, it was just one of those ironies of war where he survived all that time in Finland yeah. fighting the communists, valiantly, just an amazing man, and he came into special forces with a lot of experience about the Russians, how to battle, yeah. and then. You know, mountain warfare, training, things like that. Incredible. I mean, this, the characters that, that uh, you had touch points with in your life are just it, it, next level. And uh, there's another one right here. Of the 58 MACV SOG MIAs in Laos, only one returned, Charles Wilkow. Wilkow escaped captivity after being staked out by the NBA as human bait for rescuers for several days. His captors thought he was too close to death to need a guard, but he managed to crawl off into the jungle and evade recapture. Until rescued. I mean, crazy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I carried a hand grenade right here, because that's my last hand grenade. And McIntyre and I have vowed, we said that if we get captured, you know, we're not going to be POWs. We're going to take as many as we can with that last grenade. Yeah. Just, yeah. I just knew I couldn't do it. Yeah. Didn't want to. I don't know how those guys, any of those POWs survived. There's just, such intestinal fortitude and courage against the worst of circumstances. I just beyond imagination, the horror. 
Yeah. And these are all by the communists that who are socialists today, but we don't want to talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna, I was going to ask you here actually, um, about something, uh, uh, something associated, but actually this is kind of associated too, before I do that. Um, yeah. the, as far as tailwind, there's also a CNN 60 minutes oh. story in the late nineties that, that comes out. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And when no. you first so, saw that, what were your, yeah, what, what did you feel when you, when you saw complete, that? complete and utter rage. Now at the time I was working at a local newspaper in Oceanside, California, which was a, a local paper where we still had journalistic principles intact. You had an editorial page, op-ed page, and news, where both sides of the stories were reported fairly and accurately. So uh, 28 years after Operation Tailwind, the Communist News Network and Time Warner, not 60 Minutes, but Time Warner, came out with a story that said, instead of talking about the valor of that mission, they turned it around because they used they did use CS gas to break contact on the last day. And they had people saying that they used uh, sarin, I think, searing gas. And they said, of course, with the Communist News Network, they always come in and say, and those Green Berets, they killed dissident Americans and women and children. It was a complete, total fabrication and lie. And uh, they had to fight that. The Pentagon came out with complete denials, and eventually suits were filed against uh, the Communist News Network and Time Warner. And Ted um, Ted Turner did send a letter of apology to the team captain, Gene McCarley, and, but he never sent it to any other members of the team. So there was litigation over several years, and the settlements were all sealed. So some of the men were actually get, uh, financial retribution on that but before the before it was broadcast they were told this is going to be a good story you're going to want to show so there were our guys who put their families in front of the tv to watch cnn portray them as bodies as as traitors and as war criminals and it was a whole fabrication so and some of our guys i mean like uh, the Medal of Honor recipient, Mike Rose, was there with his family. He was stunned to think that they would portray it that way. And he had to explain to his family, well, no, we didn't do it. And Mike Hagan said for years, his family members looked at him asconce because he, they didn't know the truth. And that's that first report. When it's inaccurate, then they come back and get sued. Then they do a clarification. They bury it. Mm-hmm. Just and so the Communist News Network was doing that back in '98, and uh, it was just tragic, tragic circumstance. What what was the what started that story? Like, how did that even get any any traction, or who who ran with that and just put it up there with with? Without I'm not sure how it got started. Checking. I just know that they interviewed people, including John John K. Singlop, who was a retired mm-hmm. major general. He was an OSS agent who went across the fence, uh, fought with the French resistance in World War II. He fought in spec ops in Korea. He was Chief Sog, one of five Chief Sogs during the eight-year secret war. Just an incredible uh, man. Um, and then he also, years later, did major fundraising and campaigning to fund, to support the Contras and efforts against the communists in Nicaragua and uh, El Salvador. And 
just an American patriot to the max. Um, they interviewed him and cut out his quote to make it look like he was saying that something was a sconce there when it wasn't tragic beyond uh, just journalism at its worst. Oh, yeah. We Not have, even journalism. It's just exactly disgrace. Right. Plagiarism. Essentially propaganda arms of certain. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just ugh, it's so brutal. I mean, my eyes were first open to that in Iraq in, I think, 2006. We're in a firefight one night and the next day. Um, you don't know who got the footage, but it went on CNN and, uh, it was actually a really good, uh, video. Cause they had the, all the brass in the streets, uh, at, in one of the neighborhoods in Baghdad. And they put the camera kind of down on the ground and just showed yeah. it littered with brass, you know, right. they're showing all the damage and, and everything else. But, uh, <laughs> but the story was not right. <laughs> uh, so it was the first time I was like, ah, oh, okay, this happened last night. They got the footage this morning. Uh, it's on CNN. Now they're talking about it. I was actually there uh, in the fight, firing my weapon, and the story is, I mean, the only thing that right about it was that uh, semi the location uh, and that the, the streets were littered with brass. Um, so that was one of the first times I was like, oh, okay, I see this, uh, what's going on here. This is like, a, this is just an industry keeping eyeballs on a screen, selling ads, and now, of course, you know, trying to influence behaviors. Um, so, yeah. Well, you know, this happened in 68 or 69, yeah. a friend of mine, who was in the ASA, Ron was in Saigon getting ready to come home. And he was at a bar or something. And they had somebody threw a hand grenade. And then there was a couple of people that, that shot who to be a Kong war. And he flies home. He gets to Hawaii in route home. And on the television, the next day, they had a story based off of that hand grenade that could completely distorted it and made it sound like it was a major attack as well as war atrocities by the soldiers who were going after the Viet Cong. Incredible. He goes, wait a minute. I was, yeah. I was there. Yeah, exactly. It is eye opening when that happens to you. Like you hear about it, but then when it happens to you, you're like, oh. okay. Yep. Oh, kind of yeah. just drives it, drives it home, confirms some things that you already know. Um, and so do you ever look at kind of on that same line? Do you ever look at what's going on in this country today and look back and think that we're giving up voluntarily in many cases? There are large portions of uh, the, the voting populace actually voting, uh, retweeting, uh, supporting measures that give up freedoms that past generations fought for and many died for. Do you ever think about what's happening in this country in those terms? Agonize over it every day. My wife and I sit down, sometimes just turn the TV off because it's too painful to watch. And I know. it's hard to believe how the radical indoctrination at the college level, and then you look at the media, not only how they report, how they selectively report, and what they do not report on. Today, most of the media is tragic. Um, and I'm biased because I served as a reporter when. Uh, we had to report both sides of the story, and you separated opinion from news or news from sports. You mm -hmm. separated those categories, and you worked hard. Yes, you still reported hard-hitting stories, but you got them out. Um, today, um, when you look at the major networks that don't report stories, everything from a laptop that should be written about to mental state of a man who's now running our country, on through it's just like others don't report these things uh, i think that a lot of americans 
are getting a very biased picture from the media, the popular media. And now, thanks to the internet and podcast, at least there's an opportunity. People like Joe Rogan, I mean, have Joe as a saint, as far as I'm concerned, because he's taken off some of these issues head on. And now Jordan Peterson gives up his tenure. I mean, for Dr. Jordan Peterson to give up his tenure because he has seen so much of the doctrination across college campuses. I mean, when I came back from Vietnam, on our campuses, we had student riots. We had the SDS, the Student Democratic Society, but we knew they were communists. They were crude and rudimentary people who had no class. They, they torched a couple of our buildings. They played dominoes with our school library. This is 71, 70, and it was unbelievable that anybody would do that. But they've since improved their game. And then you have people like George Soros who fund these DAs who refuse to enforce the laws of our country for the safety of the citizens in their cities. How far will this go? Well, at some point, hopefully we'll have honest elections where the votes will be counted and Americans will have a chance to come back to vote and to speak and to get some of these issues corrected because the first the reason why we have taxes is to have people that protect the citizens. And I could go on for hours. (laughs) I know it's so, it's, it's so tough. It's, uh, it seems like the changes that are made in this country up until a certain point were always to give the citizens rights, um, not to take away. And now we're seeing that shift. Um, and, and it starts slowly, but, uh, society is certainly fragile. We saw a little bit of that at the beginning of COVID that my hope was that, uh, people would realize that how important it was to be, uh, self-reliant and how uh, not reliant on, on government. But, um, that takes me back to how important history is because when we have have people voting, we have people actively campaigning on platforms that, uh, uh, that highlight taking rights away from the citizenry. Um, I think what helps is understanding our history. Um, why do we have these rights to begin with? Um, and having that foundation and appreciating that they were given to us, um, that these options and opportunities were handed to us by past generations. And reading these books right here, your work, SOG Chronicles, everything that you have going on um, it does nothing but help these uh, younger people, for the most part, get an appreciation for what was given to them uh, and understand that it's our responsibility now to hand those freedoms off to the next generation, not curtail them. So thank you so much for, for writing these books and for, uh, for going on Jocko's podcast, for coming on here. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And it uh, just means so much to me that, uh, that you do this. And I hope we can meet up in person, possibly again, because we did possibly meet up at the Special Operations Association convention years ago. Uh, we're at least in the same room together, but uh, I, I sincerely <laughs> hope we can we can sit down together and uh, and share some stories and talk and maybe do a podcast in person one day. Well, I might be up at the Parks Park City. Uh, I mean, uh, Salt Lake City Great. next month. I'll come Wonderful. to see Mike, and we might awesome. be doing a uh, a podcast with him. And I might be interviewing Pat Watkins. If you want to meet Pat from that first story. I love oh, it. Be what a honor. man. It All right. We will talk honor. more, but thank you. And thank you for what you're doing there. Oh. And uh, like I said, we had to set the bar, but you guys came back and raised it a couple of notches. Man. And uh, 
salutes back to you, sir, and all you've done and your fellow SEALs. Well, I sincerely appreciate that. And thank you for this. Uh, sent this the other day. Uh, that means so much to me on the back, of course. There we go. We talked about these guys. But uh, yep. But thank you so much uh, for that. And then this, of course, came too. I mean, look at that. Awesome. Thank you so much for sending this. Uh, I mean, you even got the class number right on there. Um, beyond cool. So thank you so much uh, for this and for all you've done for this country and all you continue to do uh, with these books and by preserving this history for future generations. So uh, thank you, sir. Look forward to shaking your hand someday, Jack. Thank oh, you. Appreciate it. Ways. You take care. Talk soon. Just want to take a moment and thank Navy Federal Credit Union for sponsoring the podcast and for being a part of my journey throughout the military and today. Right there, that's my Navy Federal Q card that I got in 1996, right after boot camp. So for those 20 years I was in the military, Navy Federal was right there with me. What I found out recently is that you do not have to be a member of the military to go to NavyFederal.org, check it out, and become a member. So check it out, NavyFederal.org. Thank you guys so much again for sponsoring the podcast and for taking such good care of me and my family over the last 20 years in the military and today. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. You know, I'm often asked my secret to writing and I'm going to let you in on that secret right now, but don't tell anybody. So the secret is coffee in the morning, Black Rifle Coffee, Jack Carr Revenge Blend, and whiskey at night. And <laughs> I only say that partially in jest. These things do fuel my writing, but uh, it's important not to flip those around. Whiskey in the morning, coffee at night, I think that's where you may run into issues. But uh, I wanted to talk about Alpine Distilling here in Park City, Utah. They are awesome. They gave me this great bottle here, and it says, Selected by the Devil's Hand. And they gave me this one uh, to celebrate the publication of, you guessed it, book four, The Devil's Hand. So uh, very cool. Alpine Distilling. You can go to alpinedistilling.com. Check out what they have going on there. Check them out on the social channels. And here is their old bottle, Lafayette, right here. And uh, I've been using this whiskey right here for uh, old fashions that I've been making lately. And this is their new bottle right there of uh, the same the same whiskey. So Lafayette whiskey right there, Alpine distilling. And this one's a little different. You can see, look at that. There's a pepper in there. 
face. Awesome. Kind of like the worm in tequila, but awesome guys. Thank you so much. Uh, love what you have going on over there at Alpine distilling. Awesome. All right. Oh, what is this thing? This is like my favorite new, uh, pullover right here, uh, from frontier gear of Alaska, Barney sports chalet. You can check that them out up in Anchorage, Alaska, check them out their website, uh, check them out on the social channels, but frontier gear of Alaska, I'm going to get a couple more of these things. I just got this at the SCI Safari club international convention, had my eye on it for a little while and finally got one. So I'm going to buy a couple more, uh, as well, because man, this thing's awesome. I've not taken it off really since I got it. So it's awesome. I'm actually going to finish my edits for book five in the blood wearing this. So awesome. Love it. Uh, let's see what else. Okay. Going along with that whiskey there is black rifle coffee, coffee. Um, so this thing, this right here, if you can see that, um, this is a little travel case. You get some collapsible for pour overs, use this. It's awesome. Evan's made me a couple cups of coffee like that, Evan Hafer. Um, and, uh, there's a difference for sure during the pullover, uh, the pullover, the pour over. And right here, if you do it, you know, you gotta do it right now. Usually I'm running around like a crazy person in the morning, juggling kids, getting them off to school and doing all that stuff. But someday I'll have time to actually use this thing. But uh, when Evan makes coffee or any of those guys make coffee in this thing, when Logan does that, Logan Stark makes a, makes a coffee with, uh, with this thing, it's so good. It's so good. When they make coffee, I don't church it up with, uh, with honey and cream like I do when I make coffee. Um, when they do it, those guys know what they're doing. And uh, there is a difference. So awesome. I used to have a grinder around here somewhere for, for travel that was pretty cool. The Black Raffle Coffee Grinder. You can find that on their website. It's this little tiny grinder thing that goes in this kit. I had visions of always taking it with me in a Pelican case, no matter where I was going. So I was always ready. Someday, someday I will complete my Black Raffle Coffee travel kit. Um, so that is that on here. Uh, just had John Stryker Meyer on the podcast. So it is fitting. Yep. Look at that right there. Uh-huh. Jungle tiger stripes right there. And see that symbol looks very similar to that coin that John Stryker Meyer sent me. Yep. Also talked about our Seiko watches and, uh, Seiko has a really cool, uh, history with special operations in Vietnam. And there's a very cool Instagram page, Watches of Espionage. So you can check out Watches of Espionage. It's a great, it's a great uh, Instagram page. And he actually has a couple pictures of Seiko watches up there, Vietnam era. And uh, it's awesome. So check him out and be sure to check out everything John Stryker Meyer has going on, Black Rifle Coffee has going on, and Alpine Distilling has going on. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. To find out more about John Stryker Meyer, everything he has going on, go to sogchronicles.com. Definitely pick up his books, these three right here, hopefully more in the future. Check out his other podcasts, everything that he has going on, and then gift these books as well. I think that uh, this next generation needs heroes. And uh, these guys were certainly my heroes growing up and they are my heroes today. Pick up these books, check out everything John Stryker Meyer has going on. And if you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to leave that five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me officialjackcar.com. Go to jackcarusa.com for the merch and on the social channels. It's at jackcarusa. My next book in the blood, 
is coming this May 2022. It is available for pre-order now. And some of the things that we talked about on this podcast uh, are actually woven in to that storyline. So uh, take care out there. Thank you for tuning in. Be safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.